Our study at present is God's glorious salvation. And intentionally, over the last number of weeks, we have looked historically at how the church has understood, argued, uh, explored what does it mean to be saved. Specifically, is God the sole author of our salvation, or does man contribute anything to our salvation? That's what we've been exploring, and we've, we've looked at um, uh, a number of uh, historical events, a number of uh, people historically. Um, uh, these are some of, the, some of the side questions that are part of our, our, our exploration. Um, to what degree is God sovereign? Now that's a kind of a funny question, actually, because either he is absolutely sovereign, he's in charge, he's the one who's large and in charge, or he's limited in some way. So a limited sovereignty, is there such a thing? Is, does the Bible ex- expose something like that? Here's another question. How bad off is mankind? Is he able? Does he have the, the, the wherewithal to contribute anything to his salvation? Now, last week, we, we talked about the remonstrance in the um, uh, Dutch Reformed Church in response to the, um, uh, the Reformers and their return to the biblical ideas, ideals that we find in the Apostle Paul, uh, in Augustine, um, and in uh, the Reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther. Um, the benefit of having people object to any doctrine is that it forces us to go back to the scriptures and look again with um, uh, careful intent. What did the original author intend when he said, when he wrote this, for example? Um, This morning, we're going going to look, we're going to start the process of looking exactly at scripture and what does it mean teach us. Okay. Um, Full disclosure. I am an Arminian. I am um, one who has uh, recovered from my Arminian-ness. And it was uh, a young girl that I met that was the one who first challenged my thinking regarding the nature of salvation and my Arminianness. Uh, a young girl that um, is with us this morning that I fell in love with and decided I would like to marry that woman. And she's stuck with me now. <laughs> Why? Uh, 45 years. Ay, 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 ay. Um, um, so so uh, it, 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 was, it was my confrontation with the scriptures that forced me to rethink my position. 
So this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at some of my old favorite verses um, and, and, and explore um, what we might call as Arminian proof texts. Now, this morning, I am going to do my best to remove uh, labels like Arminianism and Calvinism um, from my comments. Those of you who are, are well-read in th- this whole discipline will, will understand exactly where I'm coming from, um, because I am unabashedly um, a, a, a Calvinist now. Didn't used to be. Um, but it was because of what the scriptures teach. So I, I'd like to, if, if I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to keep, keep those labels out, out of the picture because those, those can be inflammatory sometimes. We often have a, a picture in our mind of what uh, an Arminian is or a Calvinist is, and, and, and sometimes we're so way off base. So um, we're going to begin by looking at some principles of Hermeneutics, that word hermeneutics is simply a, 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 a Greek word that refers to the science and the art of interpretation. So the, the, the discipline of hermeneutics looks at what does the verse say, and then, looking at a variety of things, what does the verse mean? Let me give you three principles. There are many, but we're going we're gonna to look at these three because they're going to be um, helpful to us. Um, first, define the terms. That's your first blank. Define the terms. We, we have to know exactly what we're talking about. Now, I, I, I want to I take you to a couple of places. Um, if, if you're quick, well, well-versed with your Bible and can follow along... Uh, quickly with me, great. If not, just listen. That's fine. First uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, First Chronicles. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll send you <laughs> rabbit trailing down all kinds of places. First um, uh, Chronicles chapter 16. Listen to this. What, what we're going to look at is the definition of the word world. Okay, so we're, we're just, uh, we're, we're, we're picking that one to explore uh, what does it mean and the importance of this principle defining what we mean when we say world okay first chronicles 16 30 tremble before him all the earth indeed the world is firmly established it will not be moved what does the word world mean define the word world from that verse Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. The word word world in this verse means what? It refers to what? The earth, okay? Dirt, stuff that's around us. In uh, in the Greek, of course, that was written in Hebrew, but uh, translated into Greek, it's the word cosmos, which is what we find commonly in the, the New Testament. We could we could say that the word world here in first. Uh, Chronicle 16 refers to the earth. That's that's obvious. As an extension, we could say that the the word world might refer to the entire creation, the entire cosmos. Right? 
Does it always mean that? All right. Let's look at one particular uh, occurrence in John, John's Gospel, chapter 3. And verse 16. For God so loved... What, 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 what's the next word? Meaning the dirt, right? The earth. The, the cosmos, right? Well, no. We, we know that. It, it, no, he, he's not talking about dirt. God loved dirt. Well, Genesis chapter 1, after he created it, he said it was good. God love it. Well, that's not the point of John 3.16. The word world is used in a different way. Now, many people will say that the word world here refers to every single person without exception. Does John, let's, let's just focus on John. Does, does John always mean that for that particular word? Does he use that definition for that word? Look with me at um, chapter 14. John chapter 14, uh, verse 17. John 14, 17. You got it? It says this. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you, will be in you. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth. So does the word world, same author here, does the word world mean the same thing? If it means the same thing, then we, we have a problem. Um, if all people cannot receive the spirit of truth, then no one can be saved. Because that's part of our salvation, is receiving the Holy Spirit. So the word world cannot mean here every single person. Let me give you another one. In First uh, John chapter 2... And verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of a father is not in him. Same author. Does the word world here mean all people without exception? Well, if it does, <laughs> um, then we're, we're told not to love the people that John 3.16 tells us that God loves. And if we do love all these people that God loves, then the love of God is not in us. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. My point here is that the word world is used in a variety of different ways. Going back to John 3.16. We assume that John 3.16, when it uses the word world, refers to all people without exception. Does the text say that? Does the text mean that? 
point number two in our in our exploration of hermeneutics is consider the consider the context. We have to define our words, and sometimes we can't on on one particular verse we can't define all the words. We have to we have to go elsewhere, and we have to. Uh, open ourselves up to the possibility, well, the word world is a rather large word. It's a big umbrella. And there are lots of different uses, usages. In, um, in, in 1 John uh, 2.15, the word world refers to a godless system. Don't love the world. In, um, in John 14.17, those who are part of the world that cannot receive the spirit of truth are unbelievers. So the word world can refer to a godless system. It can refer to the earth. It can refer to um, um, uh, unbelievers. Does it in John 3.16 have to refer to all people? That's, that's the assumption that we make. Sometimes when we say things over and over um, repeatedly, we assume that that's what it always means. Right? I mean, you see Tim Tebow, um, um, football player, uh, with John 3.16 on, on, his, uh, on his cheeks as he, as he was uh, uh, playing, playing ball. Um, there is that assumption that John 3.16 talks about God loving every single person in the same way, unconditionally, is that what that text really tells us? Hey, buddy. Um, uh, well, we, in, in, in part, we have to consider the context in which um, this particular verse is, is written. Um, and there's something that we, we, need to, we, need to, we need to consider. Um, John chapter 3 is a famous chapter where Jesus is in the midst of a conversation with who? Nicodemus. And what do we know about Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. Uh, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a very prominent a very powerful, probably very wealthy man. But we've missed the most obvious. <laughs> Nicodemus is a Jew. And the Jews had as their um, uh, primary understanding, they were God's chosen people. Is that an accurate statement? Were the Jews God's chosen people? Yes, no, yes. maybe so. Yes, yes absolutely. Uh, here's where things got murky. In what sense were they God's chosen people? Were they God's chosen people because through them God was going to redeem the world, he was going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, and the entire world would be blessed because of these people? Or 
did God mean when he said the Jews were my, are, are my chosen people? They are the ones, and the only ones, that God was selecting from humanity. Well, the Jews made an assumption that when God says they were the chosen people, that meant they were the only chosen people. That was a mistake. And, and it goes, goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Through the Jews, God was, he chose them in order to bring the Messiah. The one who would redeem mankind. So here, here's, here's Jesus talking to Nicodemus about the nature of salvation. About this one who was going to come. And he was going to be lifted high. And those who, who, uh, who looked up on this one who was lifted high would be saved. Jesus says, who so loved the world, God's, God so loved the world, or, 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 or better, we could translate, God loved the world in this manner. He gave his only begotten son, that the one who believes in him, literally, that's what the Greek says, the one who believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Who's the world? Is it everyone without, without uh, exception? No. It's those who are not just Jews. Jesus is telling Peter, or, or P- telling Nicodemus, um, uh, those, uh, those Gentiles who are part of the world, God loved them in this manner. Namely, Christ came, offered up himself. Those who believe will not perish. Not perish. All right, so... That's just uh, an, an example here of, of uh, this principle of, of hermeneutics. Define your terms. Secondly, consider the context. Third, look for clarity. And by that I mean this. What is implicit, what is hidden, what is uh, murky, has to be interpreted by what is explicit. So you might have something that is implied in the text. You're reading between the lines, so to speak. And you think, this is probably what the author is trying to communicate to us. Well, we have to check that according to what is explicit. What is actually stated to be the case. That's going to guard us from making a um, a faulty conclusion. What is less clear has to be interpreted by what is more clear. Now, this, this whole process um, of, 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 of studying or of, of interpreting the scriptures requires a great deal of study, a great deal of discipline. Um, I, this, this church has, has blessed me um, to free me up to study um, the scriptures. And I'm, I'm 
honored and privileged to, to be able to do that. For every hour you, you see me standing in front of you to, to speak, you can count on the fact I've spent between 15 and 20 hours getting ready for that. Preachers don't just stand up and talk. Well, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Well, I get, I get. Okay, I'm going to withdraw that because there's many that do just exactly that. Um, but this uh, this one in front of you is is not one of them. Um, so this, without uh, further ado, I, I. Oh wow! I wanted to be halfway through uh, where we were going to go first this morning. We might not get through everything today. That's okay. We're not in a hurry. Okay, I'm in, I'm in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, is one of those go-to verses that I used to go to to say, see, <laughs> it's in black and white, it's right here. It's so obvious with regard to our salvation that God wants everyone to repent and to believe is saved. Let me read the text from uh, the uh, New American Standard. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Question, does God want, does God will that everyone repent and be saved? Is that what this verse teaches? Well, there are some that look at this verse uh, the New American Standard uses the word wishing. God is not wishing for any to perish. Other, other translations will render it, God, God is not willing. And there are, there are some uh, interpreters who will use this, uh, this uh, line of thinking to answer this, this, uh, this, this, uh, this quandary. They, they, will, they will examine what what does it mean for God to will something? And they'll, they'll talk about uh, God's, God's will of decree. God's will of decree is um, a statement that God makes. Uh, he ordains something to take place. And it happens. It's, it's done. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Here's a, um, let's see here, where, um, um, oh, here we go. I had to find it in my notes. Uh, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this in, uh, in verse 11. Mm, 
We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. If God says it, it is going to happen. Is that what Peter means? Does Peter mean when he says God is, God is not wishing or God is not willing for any to perish, is God saying that no one will ever perish? Thank you for that negative statement. <laughs> well, if, 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 it, if, it, if he is, then... Um, uh, well, we, we, we can say that, that uh, God is, God is all-powerful and is able to accomplish whatever he chooses to do. If he says everybody's going to um, survive, everybody is, no one is going to perish, and we're talking about his will of decree, we have just ended up in the land of universalism, meaning that all people are going to be saved. Well, there's a problem with that because God created hell. And he created an environment in the Garden of Eden knowing that mankind would do their own thing. How, 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 how do we get around that? Okay, well, some will say, well, okay, we're not talking about God's will of decree when we're talking about Second Peter chapter 4. 3 verse 9, we're, we're really talking about God's will of desire. God is not happy with the fact that um, uh, men perish. And it is not his desire that any perish. Um, let's say, for example that you have hurt your leg badly or you've hurt your finger badly and it's 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 gotten diseased and um, it's 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 a it's a big mess you go to the doctor and the doctor says I'm sorry we have tried everything there is nothing more we can do this is going to threaten your life if we don't remove your finger going to have to remove the finger. It is not your desire to remove the finger, but you say, remove the finger. You're, you're doing, you're, you're, you're making the hard, the hard uh, decision here. Um, you don't want that. It's not, it's not your, it's not your desire but you say, okay. No example. Um, the righteous judge has a convicted felon in front of him. He doesn't want to send that young man to prison. But he has the responsibility of, hope, of, of upholding the law. It is not his desire, but he must, for justice sake, send him to prison. 
in that kind of a setting, we, we might say, well, if, if 2 Peter 3.9 is talking about God's will of desire, he doesn't want anyone to perish. But justice has to be served. Um, he wants them to come to repentance, but no, they, they must be punished. Well, there, there, there is uh, someone on the other side of the aisle who will say, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you're, you're, you're stopping right here and assuming that this verse is talking about God's will of desire where we really haven't exhausted the possibilities talking about God's will. We might also talk about in a different color. God's will of permission. God's permissive will. So these on the other side of the aisle will say, um, God uh, it wants, um, wants men to be saved. He, he wants them to repent and believe. Um, and, and God's done everything he needs to do, but it's up to mankind. They're the ones that ultimately make the decision. So it is his permissive will. He gives mankind the freedom to choose, do you want Jesus or not? Up to you. And that's what this verse means. So they would, so they would argue. Um, now, uh, oh, I, I, I forgot. You, and I think I, I forgot to... Let me see. I did, I did. Um, I forgot to have you... Uh, I forgot to put this in your notes. Um, um, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 23 and 32. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18... Here's, here's what those verses say. Now, this, this goes along with, with, with God's will of desire. Um, verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than he should turn from his ways and live? Do, do I have any pleasure in this? God asks the question. Then he answers the question at the end of the chapter. Verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. All right, that, that, that fits in here with, it, with uh, understanding um, 2 Peter 3.9 as, as, um, um, as, as God's will of desire. Now, this, this is all one way to understand this verse, but I don't think it's the best way. The easier way to understand this is to look at the context, specifically at the audience to whom Peter is writing. And I want you to look at verse 9 again. And I want you to notice a pronoun in the middle of that verse. 
Let me read it again. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward... What's the next word? You. Or if you have King James, it's... um, Or or New King James, it's us. And... um, Real, real, real quickly, the, 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 the two, the two, um, the two words, us and you, in the Greek are. Um, oops, that's wrong. Is humas and hamas. Um, this, this is you and this is us. Um, now, I- imagine, actually my thing, in, as, as manuscripts are, are copied, imagine what, what might happen if, if there was a smudge that took place. And the smudge looked like that. So you had two lines here, like this. And you didn't know, well, which, which is this? Is this supposed to be a, a you or an us? Well, um, that's, that's, how we, that's how we got these, these differences. The King James is built on a different um, family of manuscripts. Um, so so don't, get, don't, get, don't get too, uh, too, too riled up about whether this should be you or us. The, the pronoun here um, is, is important and it's unique. Um, not unique. It's imp- it's important. Um, he is patient. God is patient toward you. Who's the you? Turn over to chapter one, verse uh, verse one, first uh, or second half of that verse. Peter's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. By the righteousness of God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Peter's writing to believers, those who have received a faith the same kind as ours. Look down at verse 10, same chapter. Um, uh, okay, he calls them brethren. You see that? So the, the you, the, the audience to whom uh, Peter's writing this letter, are um, believers. He calls them brothers. Now in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, but. Okay, there's a, there's a difference, there's a contrast. Contrast in the people he's talking about. He's talking about false prophets. It's what the the second chapter in this particular epistle is all about. These false prophets arose among the people, uh, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And he talks about their character. They are uh, unscrupulous, godless people. Consistently, if you look at verse 10, the, uh, the Apostle Peter refers to they, these people as them, or they. And he uses the, the, um, the, the pronoun their, T-H-E-I-R. Look, look at verse 10. 
daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic uh, majesties. And um, verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse. Um, so, so there's this you, or us, um, brethren, and then there are the them, the theys, the, these other people, the false teachers, false prophets. Well, in chapter 3, he returns to speaking about his audience, to his audience, and in verse 1, he refers to them again as beloved. Okay, these are the brethren. We find that in um, uh, verse, uh, where is it? Verse 14, beloved. And again in verse 17, beloved. So, um, oh, and verse 8 as well. I knew there was another one. So four, four times in this chapter, he's, he's talking about these who are the beloved ones, uh, the brethren. These who, who are, are genuinely saved people. And so, so Peter says to them in verse, uh, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. you. You who are believers. You who are my brethren. You are, who are my beloved. Beloved by the Lord. Beloved to me. The Lord is patient toward you. He's not wishing for any to perish. Does that mean anyone at all? Or does that mean, referring to the, the you, just, uh, just a, a few words away, does he, does he saying, He's, he's not wishing for any of you to perish. But for all, again, because of the proximity of the word you, he's, he, he's not wanting any of you to perish, but all of you to come to repentance. So there appears to be this waiting period, um, the waiting for judgment, which is, which is what, what uh, chapter, the first part of chapter 3 is about, the coming day of the Lord. Um, there, there is a period of, of judgment coming, but God is demonstrating his patience, waiting for his chosen ones, his elect. Um, he, he's waiting for them to come to repentance. He's not willing, he's not willing, uh, by way of his decree, for any of these to perish. None of his people will perish. Not one. They will all come. Every single one of these people in his purview, not everybody in the whole world, but Everyone in his purview, they will all come to repentance. Um, you could jot, jot these um, uh, verses down. 
Acts 11.18. And Second um, um, Timothy 2.5. Second Timothy 2.5. In both of these uh, verses, we find that repentance is a gift from God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we know that faith is a gift from God. So when God calls an individual... He uses the external call of the gospel and then the internal call of the Holy Spirit. When God calls a, whole, a, a person unto um, uh, salvation, he justifies them in the halls of heaven. There's a gavel sound and God declares that individual saved, redeemed, justified, righteous in his sight. Because of Christ, that person is given a new heart, a new ability, a new, uh, a, a new nature. He, he now can please God where he never had been able to please God before. And, 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 and the, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, is so lovely, so perfect, so desirous, that without exception, those people that are called internally by the Holy Spirit, God gifts them with the ability to believe with the ability to repent. And, it, and in, in front of the loveliness of Christ, they, they, they turned from their sin and they said, all, all I want, all I want is Jesus. And uh, they, these are the ones who are born again. Not one of them will perish. Every one of them will come to repentance, faith. Faith. 